Hello, um, this is Anlanta's Artist Support Podcast, uh, a series of interviews with interesting creative people who are living and working in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Uh, this is episode two, and I'm talking to uh, Mary Gillis, um, who is a visual artist who lives in Uig on the west coast of Lewis, and whose work, as she puts it, spans between the studio, classroom, exhibition spaces, and the living landscape. Mary, welcome. Thank you. Um, so your relationship with the Isle of Lewis and its traditions and uh, Gaelic language and the landscape here has become a really important part of your work as an artist, um, which is something I really want to talk to you about. But I wanted to start by asking you about where you grew up and I guess how that shaped you as a, as a, as a person and an artist. Well, I grew up in Edinburgh and... I think I was shaped principally by my family, but also by being somewhere I didn't really resonate with. So my uh, father is a scholar of Gaelic and Celtic studies, and my mother is a poet um, and a creative writing teacher. Um, so my upbringing, I realise now as an adult, was probably quite unusual uh, in that we had lots of different creatives and scholars kind of shuffling around our, our house and into and out of our lives. My mum did a lot of residencies, actually, which I think really um, has underpinned my understanding of what a residency um, should be or could be, um, because hers were based around poetry and, and she worked a lot in libraries and public spaces with communities um, but also it, it with landscapes. I think that that led me to question wherever I land in perhaps a different way and um, I had lots of bouts of ill health when I was young which meant that I often was on residency with my mum because she didn't have any other childcare so I would be out at writing workshops or she did a wonderful project where she um, followed the River Tweed from source to sea and collaborated with a musician, a composer, Severna Stevenson, and a photographer. And uh, they produced a, a book and they toured like every, um, every village and town in the Scottish borders with poetry and music. So I went to all of those and I knew every part where like the bass guitar would come in and where the classic would play and my mum's poetry inside out. And she did interesting um, kind of inquisitive projects around um, translation from Italian to English. And she, her, her people are from Angus. So she spoke a lot of kind of broad Scots um, as well. So I, I came I, up, my upbringing was also influenced by language. So I've only ever spoken Gaelic with my dad um, and spoken a, a mix of English and Scots with my mum. So that was quite formulative too. I also had like two badass women in my life. My, my, my grandmother and my great aunt. My great aunt was like um, a spinster who lived in, in a very rural part of the Scottish borders who was a microbiologist and had horses and long dogs and poached and was just generally wild. 
and her sister who is like the chalk to the cheese who um ran an art gallery and bred Siamese cats and was like an art dealer so uh, that's quite an eclectic mix in the background there <laughs> so were those trips to the countryside um where your aunt lived quite formative as well do you think very much so that was where my heart longed for she had a small holding, so she had hens and goats and horses and various different menagerie of things that were quite chaotic um, in a wonderful way. So I was, when I went there, I was in the hay barn or in the hen house or guddling in the river or way up the hill. And it was a complete sense of freedom for me. And I used to dread really going back to the city there was nothing particularly bad about it but even when I was in the city we were lucky enough to have a big back garden mm. and I was slightly feral if I'm honest I was climbing trees and uh, walking along walls and purposely falling into neighbors gardens so that I could scramble back out again <laughs> and um and and gardening and swinging and just being a wee wildy uh, I think I remember quite a pivotal moment in my life when I was 12 and I was in the bath and I looked down at my knees and it was the first time in my life I didn't have cuts or bruises on my legs. And I was like, oh my God, I've grown up. <laughs> <laughs> and was there a moment when you knew you wanted to be an artist? No, I think there was just moments where I knew I didn't want to be anything else. Okay. In fact, in primary one, apparently the story goes that my teacher, Mrs. Grieve, asked everybody in the class, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, like Lindsay had said she wants to be a doctor and Richard said he was going to be a neuroscientist. And she came to me and I said I wanted to be a farmer's wife. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a farmer's wife because I just had done a spell lambing in the Scottish borders with my mum in this very remote farm. And the farmer's wife had a pony a tractor and an aga with lambs in. All the things you could possibly want, right? That was all the things I could possibly want in life. And she didn't have to go to school, Andrew. <laughs> so that was my kind of, that That was apparently what I really wanted. It wasn't because, you know, I had some sort of like misogynistic view of, of it. It was like, that was actually the dream job. Mm. But then you end up studying sculpture and horticulture. It's an interesting combination. Yeah, I studied, um, I, 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 I was at quite um, a successful academic achieving state school. So the focus was really on doing well academically. Um, I didn't do that well academically. I was fine. I was kind of in the middle somewhere. But um, I felt the only thing I was good at was art. And my sister uh, had already been to art college and I felt arty so I went and found that I really liked hanging out in the metal workshop and the casting workshop and the wood workshop and I liked boiler suits and tools so I opted for sculpture um, which I loved I just love making but when by the time I'd reached my fourth year um, I realized that I didn't want to teach I didn't want to make commercial art, as in trying to make a profit from selling what I made, and that I didn't think I was successful enough to succeed with any sort of funding. I didn't have like a strong aesthetic or I, I, I could see who was really successful. And I thought I had um, 
I had no other options but to get a job. Mm. So I um, had done a residency, like a, um, I'd volunteered at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh for um, between my third and fourth year, kind of as a research period for myself. And I had worked in the indoor like glass department and had loved it there and had thought, actually, I could really work here. So that was when I started kind of going from the end product to the route to get there and thinking, what do I need to do to actually get a job here? And that was when I found that you, one could study horticulture with plantsmanship, which is what I then went to do. So um, that is that's that was what the decision making process was around that. And so I started an HN. D, I think it was, um, but left after a year because I got hired by the botanics. So I then became a scientific horticulturist and worked there for a while. I mean, looking at your work now, you can still sort of see the roots of that. There's interesting combination of that world of sculpture and the world of horticulture and the landscape and gardening and, and, and all that. I mean, can you tell me a bit about um, what brought you to the Isle of Lewis? Sure. Um, I had spent a lot of my youth visiting Orkney where my best pal, my actually my pen pal, who was my best pal, Lizzie lived and was from. So all of my holidays, I uh, used to do a swap with her. It was like the town mouse and the country mouse. And I would spend a week in Orkney and then she would come for a week in Edinburgh. And um, I loved the islands. We, she, as soon as we could, she and I would, um, you know, go backpacking and have little adventures. Um, and I loved that relationship between the sea and the land. Um, although all of my kind of uh, time at my aunt's had been much more kind of moorland mountain ranges. Hers, the Orkneys, is very coastal. And I remember thinking, God, this is so great. I just wish they spoke Gaelic here. That would be cool. <laughs> and I had been to Sky and other places with my with my parents, obviously, with my my like dad's connections and things, but I had always had a draw to be somewhere rural and um I knew a bit about crofting and obviously around Gaelic language still being spoken here. So when an opportunity arose for me and my family to move here, I was like gung ho. It was it was the um, it was the dream, the Hebridean dream is what I used to call it, the Hebridean oh. dream. And you describe yourself. You make a point of describing yourself as a Gallic visual artist. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why that's important to you and what you mean by that. Sure. Well, I would describe myself first as Vanagail, which means a Gallic woman. Um, so I think sometimes today we focus a lot on Gaelic language um, rather than Gaelic culture. And when I, so I, I did a, a postgraduate and master's in learning and teaching Gaelic arts. And that was quite a voyage of discovery for me because my arts practice, although had kind of touched on Gaelic themes and topics in the past or used Gaelic language, it was so part of me, I did never stop to think about it really. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't anything that was ever overt in my practice. It was just there, part of me, like part of the aperture through which I view the world. But when I started to examine what that was and what 
how that affected my outputs as a creative practitioner, um, then I started to realize that there was something inherently uh, gale or Gaelic in the way I was seeing the world. And I had started looking for visual arts like made around or through Gaelic. And I really struggled to find anything or anyone or there was just a small number of creative practitioners who kind of were talking about Gaelic, um, whether that be language or culturally. And yet there was this really well um, recognized and celebrated other art forms like Gaelic poetry, Gaelic uh, performance, Gaelic music, Gaelic song, piping, um, something that everybody feels like really comfortable with celebrating, right? But then like this void, this vacuum around the visual arts. So while I wouldn't normally kind of stress the fact that I'm a visual artist rather than just an artist, because I work in kind of multidisciplinary ways and we're try to, I think, these days move away from pigeonholing art practices. At the same time, I'm quite um, overt in saying now that that is the kind of part of my medium is, is Gaelic. And what do you think it says about Scotland that this, this, this idea of, of being Gaelic visual artist and, and, and Gaelic visual arts is not more sort of widely recognised? I think it's a symptom of a post-colonial narrative. So I think um, I think that it just has gone unnoticed, undiscussed, unquestioned for a really long time. And as soon as you kind of open up Pandora's box, people are like, oh, yeah, well, of course, Gaelic is a culture, has also a language and multiple ways within with with which to express itself so of course visual arts will be part of that but until people have been on that journey to ask those questions it doesn't exist mm. so how does it how does that say what, what does that say about scotland well um it, it, yeah it's a it's a symptom of what's happened in our history can you give me an example of a, kind of a piece of visual art that feels kind of distinctly Gaelic? Great question. Hmm. I think the easiest thing for me to do is to give you uh, uh, an example of an experience that I had, mm -hmm. if I can. So I had a peer review. I've had two peer reviews that were wonderful, both of them equally in different ways. Um, and one was in English and one was in Gaelic. And the one in English, people expressed what they saw looking at my work and responded to that. And the same happened with the group of Gaels, Gaelic speakers. Um, but after the Gaelic one, I it was the first time I had ever conversed about a piece of art that I had made in Gaelic with other mm. Gaelic speakers. And the things that they saw in the work that I made were so distinctly accurate without me giving even a title or an, any context to what they were looking at. Um, and I, I was extremely moved afterwards uh, because I felt like they were able to see something Gaelic 
in what I had made. Does that answer the question? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was I was going to ask for an example of something that they'd said, but I, I wondered, does, would it actually translate into English or would it only make sense in, in, in Gaelic? No, I think it's like a, it's almost like a cultural thing. So there's an element of hospitality or I've spoken before a little bit about kind of like the art of Kayleying mm. that is to me kind of distinctively Gaelic. It happens in other places, in other parts of Scotland. But, you know, bear in mind, most of Scotland was Gaelic at some point. was <laughs> Gaelic at some point. So, I don't know, there's something around the the relationships between people and it's almost like uh, I was exploring a crofting view of plastic not that long ago, uh, like mm -hmm. how crofters use plastic, how they reutilize things. Like uh, there's a lot of things within Gaelic culture that you can kind of nowadays say, oh, well, that's no dig technique or that's permaculture or that's recycling or that's, you know, th there's lots of things that we are kind of coming back into, which were inherently part of a rural Gaelic culture. Um, and yeah, I think that there's something about the saving, the thriftiness, the reusing um, uh, that's like passed down from people in an understanding of materiality mm. and a need to be able to do that because you have to be resilient there's like a resilience to it as well. It's the same thing around like uh, land ownership. Like there's a different approach, a different headspace around land ownership from a Gale perspective to perhaps more widely broader Scots perspective. And it's one I've noticed from buying and owning, owning property in Edinburgh to buying and owning property in Lys or land for that matter. Yeah, I mean the the whole crofting system can be quite hard for people to get their heads around if they you know, if they've never lived here and they don't and they don't know it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, that, I mean a big part of your sort of artistic creative process is just getting out into the world and be, and you know being out in the land and you go on these very long walks. Um, you said that quite often in in the summer months you would do this barefoot. You know, which I, quite, um, I, I wanted to ask a bit about that, about some of these kind of walks and journeys that you've been on. Yeah. Well, my, my walking practice has changed based on my location. So when I first moved to Lewis, I moved to High Borv, not regular Borv, High Borv. There's a river and a great divide. <laughs> And my walking practice then was basically two circular routes um, that I did probably every day, sometimes twice a day over a number of years. Um, and I became friends with every pebble. I knew every place by the apricot rock in the corner or the um, quartz uh, section of wall or dike, um, or the way that the sea broke at a certain point would dictate the weather. I could tell by where the clouds were and the rainfall, how many minutes I had before it would land on the land. Mm. So I became like very fluent in that place. And when I moved to Ig, um, I was moved away from the sea and I'm now inland a bit. And uh, it is quite similar to the landscape that my great aunt's smallholding was in 
So hilly and moor and rocky. And when I came to view the house, the lady who was selling it to me, my friend now, Marianne, had said to me, you see that fence out the window? That's the only fence between here and Harris. And I thought, sold. <laughs> I want to live there. So as soon as I moved in, I knew I was going to do the walk to Harris, which is like a 18, 19 mile walk. Um, and I busted a move and I did it in a day. And by that time I had to been doing quite a lot of barefoot walking and um, barefoot walking changes your understanding of traversing the landscape. It, it changes your relationship with how you're um how you move so very roughly when you're in boots you want to stay high and dry and when you're barefoot you go low and damp and soft mm. and um the way that you therefore move through a landscape where there are no roads there are no footpaths there are only occasionally kind of echoes of deer tracks um, then that's it changes how you move and and your gait and how you might um, pick your way across the place. Mm. And sometimes you'll be out there for days, right, or at least overnight. Yeah. Yeah, I I um, really find it uh, healing to be out and away. And it's interesting, I got lent a bivy bag from a friend and when he sent it to me, I had a slight fear because a bivy bag is a waterproof sleeping bag for anyone who doesn't know and you, you sleep completely concealed. There's like a small gap with a wire rim around your mouth. So it's like a coffin um, bag and your whole head is covered. And I thought, oh, I'm either going to be claustrophobic or the lack of tent, which I was used to, I'm going to be scared. And when I was young in Edinburgh, I was really scared of the dark. Like I had a nightlight on till I was like 12, maybe even older. And um, on my first night, I thought I'm just going to go up the hill that my house is on. So I climbed up there and found like a reasonably spongy bit of heather. And I got into my bivy bag and I was totally fine. And what I realized I was scared of I'm going there, I'm going to share, <laughs> was was actually humans. So mm. I'm not scared of deer or or we don't have like foxes or badgers or other kind of um, like, I don't know, car carnivore animals here. It, but, but we've got like there were deer rutting at the time, moving around me and sheep and I could hear them through the night. But uh, I realized I knew that nobody goes up that hill apart from me. And uh, I didn't need to have my back against a wall, which I thought I was going to need to have some sort of like uh, an angle to protect myself. Mm. And actually the fear I had been carrying all of my life, just it was of humans. Wow. I mean, one of the things I guess you have to get used to living somewhere like this is the darkness. I mean, there's very long hours of darkness in winter. And also, you know, if you're out in that, you're, you're well away from any street lights or any kind of lights you're in, completely immersed in darkness that must, must be quite an experience being up a being a yeah and i think the other the other big observation is that in the winter months so like i've bivvied um in october 
is your length of night is so much longer. Mm. So, you know, when you're camping in the summertime, especially summertime here, you might only sleep for a few hours between light going dark and getting light again. But October, let me tell you, it gets dark early and it takes a long time to get light again. So you have to be comfortable with being in your head. And how does this all translate into into making work? I mean, you document it, you take photos, you collect things. I mean, I, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I am working that out. I'm still working all of that out, but I take photographs as a way of recording things like a sketchbook. Mm. Um, so I'm constantly snapping little interesting things. I have relationships with rocks, the glacial erratics around here, they're called Olax in Gaelic. And um, I have particular ones that I like to visit and I take them on portrait mode on my phone like, uh, like you know, you would take a portrait of a person, does something to the background, it changes the focus and stuff. Mm. So I really like that play of these kind of stone portraits. Um, so I have a, I have several series of things that show up, uh, like patterns of collecting that I do. So I have these stone portraits. I have these little video shorts that I take, um, which are um, called points of view. And they are again from my uh, phone but held the camera like the phone held against my forehead between my two eyes so the camera of the phone is like the third eye placement and that's just to try and give as or capture as much of my perspective as I possibly can so in it you'll see like my scraggly hair billowing about and and what I'm seeing from my height from my stature from my point of view mm. And then I have other ways of recording, like um, sometimes I will braid plant materials as I'm walking to measure the length of time that it takes for me to get from like ground level to summit. Mm -hmm. Or I've also done a little series of, of those kind of braided plant materials sometimes it's grasses sometimes it's mosses and things like that based on how long it takes for me to pose a question and to receive an answer um so yes those are some of the ways that I'm recording what's happening but I have issues with it Andrew because I sometimes feel like it impacts on the live exchange that I'm experiencing that kind of third party voyeur recording of it I think that the recording I have comes actually really clearly through from my horticulture days so I went like on plant collecting trips to Borneo and to Oman and you have to record everything right so it's like your humidity your soil pHs your um, altitude everything has to be recorded in this very scientific way um, and as much information gathering as possible so that when you are bringing like plants back into this uh, this country you can replicate that environment so there's something in me that uh, is drawn to record um but then there's things that I can't record so there's there's like feelings or experiences that I can't do justice 
So sometimes it, it shows up in poetry. I write some poetry as well. And I try to take little vignettes of films and stuff. But uh, And other times I'll take casts off of the hills or the, the um, moor. And yeah, those are the different ways that I'm exploring how to how to record what's happening, but a lot of it goes unrecorded, apart from me. <laughs> and I guess there's sculpture as well, which um, there are examples of things you've sculpted on, on your website, which is, I guess, also a response to the landscape. And, and the other thing, of course, is is your garden, you know, to bring it right back to horticulture. I mean, the, the garden at this um, place you're living now in, in, in Uig is, is a big part of your life and uh, and I guess part of your art as well. Yeah, you know, I describe what I'm uh, exploring at the moment as kind of a place-based practice. Mm. And with that are the, I'm very, I'm very drawn to the old ways. So I have a foot plough and I cut peat and I carry a creel and I put seaweed on my um, fianak and my, my lazy beds and I try to grow old varieties of plants and last year was my first time growing grains so I grew oats and barley and rye. So I'm trying to cultivate um, an understanding, a deeper understanding and appreciation of, of Gale um, and trying to understand what growing mechanisms were in place that might actually be um, of use as we go forward in this very untenable, unsure time. I've been wondering about um, seed bank projects of where I kind of collect, store and resow plants that become very specific to this location for this climate, for this soil. Having said that, I've been, um, I, I lucked out in the old school that I bought. It has a walled garden, which is around an acre. I say walled garden, I have a dike, <laughs> but it's stock proof, right? Mm. But the thing I hadn't realized I had bought was I had bought about 120 years worth of gardening, which converted into where I am means I have the most unbelievable topsoil that's deep and rich. And when you peek your nose over the head of the dike to the other side, you will see stone, heather and bog. So although it's really wet, I have the most unbelievable ground that is very fruitful. So I feel like as custodian of this space and place for a while, I have a duty to do something positive with it for myself and others. Mm. Um, I have one more question, I think, which is, um, what would you say is your favorite thing about living where you live? Oh, that's so hard. Connection. Connection. That's a real cheat. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel very connected to the landscape, to people, to the culture. But um, I think the, the feeling of connectedness you know, I think people think of where I am as being very uh, rural and within rural, I'm also not necessarily in like a, a village as such. There's mm. just a couple of houses here. So I think um, 
My experience of it, though, is quite different. It feels very connected. Mary Gillis, thank you so much. Um, this has been Anlanta's Artist Support Podcast, uh, presented with support from the Foyle Foundation. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, look out for more of these in the months to come. <laughs>